We're here in Grange Church. Of the three churches, this is the main church for the parish of Cooley. Um, it's very old. It was built in 1762. And like there is a lot of history attached to this particular church, dating back for so long. We're looking down over the, the main car park area. To the right is an old thatch pub. And the cops would have, Tom's cops would have walked him up the road here towards the church. And I know I was standing in the doorway to see when it was going to arrive because I was organising some of the seating. And it was mo- a most tense feeling, a most emotional feeling, just watching and looking at the crowds of people, the thousands and thousands of people that were accompanying that cortege up the road. A most lonesome, cold, traumatic feeling, you know, that here this after gone through so much of turmoil in the hours and days that had gone before to say that he's coming to his resting place his parish church you know the last refuge before one is put into that cold hole on the ground when you come over the road there and you look at Tom's house you think about it every day if you're over that road every day you look at Tom's house and you think Tom's gone, you know, and, and it's a shame, it really is a shame. You see his little girls walking on the road there and the father's gone, murdered. Sure, it's, it's unbelievable. Tom Oliver was a dairy farmer from the Cooley Peninsula, northeast of Dundalk. On the night of the 18th of July, 1991, he left his home to assist one of his cows that was having difficulty in calving. He was never seen alive again. This is the story of Tom Oliver, one victim of the Northern Troubles, and the neighbours and friends who can't forget him. Pather MacDonald is one of them. Somebody told him there was a problem with his tractor, that he came down to investigate, or that people just abducted him and took him down here, you know. Like, it's hard to imagine that a man on his last hours in the area could be taken down this terrible, lonely road, you know, and not knowing what's going to happen to him, you know. Father Dennis Fall of Dungannon sees the Tom Oliver case in a wider context. The first thing that was different about that case was the funeral. The fact that the Cooley Kickham's footballers turned out in strength and that the AFA turned out in strength. The Cooley people were not prepared except that they're rather, they rather unique, uh, homogeneous, exceptional kind of people in Cooley. It's a kingdom, there's no doubt it's called the Kingdom of Cooley and they are a kingdom people, they are a royal people. They have their own standards and they have their own high opinion of themselves. And they weren't prepared to allow the rascals from South Armagh to come in and at the, with the instigation and help of one or two local people, who, or local families of people, who the Cooley people have, are able to identify, but can do nothing about. Well, they can do something about it, they have done something about it. And they were able to take away one of the finest uh, men in Cooley, a well-known farmer, a well-known parent, and uh, 
give him a terrible death, you know, put six, six, seven bullets into his head and throw him on the side of the road without priest, without uh, benefit of, or, or blessings or, or doctors or anything else, without a child, without a jury, on the on some uh, the usual sort of mixture of pub talk, and I saw you talking to a policeman. As he enters one of Tom Oliver's fields, Pather MacDonald talks about the Cooley area and its history. You have good land. The land is good. The land is really good, you know. And small farming, but at the same time they're energetic people. And they know what the poor times were and the hard times were, you know. So they don't forget that easily. Like in my generation, um, we hadn't very much, you know. A lot hadn't gotten... You used to pay the, 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 the grocery man when you sold a bullock. That type of thing. And people took it for granted that once you got your money, you paid and. People were honest and coolly, you know. He said, it's a world in its own. Because you have the sea on one side and you have mountains on the other side. And the sea travels from Dundalk right round the peninsula, right across Riverstown, Giles's Quay, O'Meath, for Greenore, right up into Newry. And that's really the Cooley Peninsula. So you have that facing the sea. And the backbone of it then is to the north, you have the mountain range. So you have the sea on one side and the mountains on the other. And that tends to isolate it. Like, there's really just one road between Cooley and Dundalk. There's really only one road between Cooley and Uri. You know, so it's amazing you only can go in one way and out the other, unless you cross a mountain or something like that, you know? Or get a boat. So you're landlocked. <laughs> Tom Oliver lived all his life in Cooley. His sister, Marie Savage, remembers their childhood. Well, he was... An imp, an imp of the devil, as my mother used to call him, you know, full of fun and he wasn't too fond of school. Now he was more a doer than a, a, a thinker or a, a learner. He would just do the minimum with the books and he, he loved, he, he seemed to love work. He was like a workaholic, really. You know, he'd be working there on the farm till quite late at night and it wouldn't bother him in the least. You know, he wouldn't be wishing he was finished or anything. He just carried on till the job was finished. Um, so he used to say him he couldn't wait to leave school, like to get out and working on the farm. And he loved driving. You know, when he was younger, it was driving the tractor and then the car. That was what appealed to him, I suppose. And he was always on the go. I mean, he was on the go from morning till night. If you looked out the road, Tom was either coming or going, or he was blocking the road with cattle or something. That was a great joke out here, you know. If there, if there was a hold up, it was either a checkpoint or Tom Oliver's cattle, you know, and. That was the way it was, you know. Liz Keenan, with her husband Tommy, runs the local shop and pub in Riverstown, a few yards from Tom Oliver's home. I was often on the road and, you know, the, the, there'd be a hold-up with the cattle. He'd a lot of cattle and he'd have to take them over to the milk and parley, you know, and um, the road would be blocked. And it, you might shout something at him, you know, and he'd laugh. He'd just laugh. I, he was that type of person. I don't think anybody would ever say anything like that to Tom because he wasn't the type of person you would say anything to. You know, he was too nice. My father was a farmer, and he, being the eldest son, inherited the farm. And uh, he, he built... My mother and father um, started the dairy farm in a small way, and he built it up then to 90 cows, and he was very pleased with that achievement. Um, even though it was a struggle financially, of course he was always struggling financially. But he did his best to, you know, to keep going and keep everybody paid up as best he could. Um, 
so and he was really he loved the cows I must say he even you know had a well, I don't know if you call it a personal relationship with them, but he knew some of them, but he had names on them, you know, and he'd be very pleased when they did well. And the only thing that would upset him, of course, an odd time they'd die or a calf might die. Um, and he could be, well, not heartbroken, but quite upset about it now. Um, and he read the Farmer's Journal religiously and any other farming uh, magazines or that he got his hands on. And listen to the farming programs on television, of course. And then it's from listening to other farmers and going to meetings and that he learned a lot. I remember he often told me the last night he was, was here, he was here just a couple of weeks before his death, and he gave me a great rundown on Muldaw milk and all the various uh, negotiations that were part of farming nowadays and milk quotas and so on. And he was he particularly enjoyed. The, these meetings where somebody in the body of the audience would take on the men at the top table who might be smug in, in their, that they had all the answers. And Tom particularly enjoyed somebody who took them on and really rattled them. He enjoyed that. Um, no, he was a, a warrior in his own way too, I would say, um, about farming and what the future held in farming. But he, he didn't burden people with any worries that he had he kept it I'd say to himself Bernard Murnahan, a local teacher knew Tom Oliver from their school days together some years ago a neighbour of ours James uh, who had at this stage retired from farming and he was, had acquired then a new interest in keeping a few ponies and of course he was immensely proud of them he was a man who lived alone and it transpired that he had uh, entered this pony for the Dundalk show um, but then when the day arrived he had no means of getting the pony to Dundalk it's a, a distance of 12 miles so anyway on the morning of the show Tom Oliver was woken by continuous knocking on his bedroom window at about 6.30 in the morning and uh, Tom jumped out of bed to see what was the commotion and as he drew back the blind uh, what was star staring him in the face but two faces looking at, peering in at him the face of James and the face of the pony James had brought the pony right over Tom's path to, to the bedroom window and uh, said Tom heard the voice saying are you getting up? he says I want you to bring this pony to the show so good neighbour that Tom always was he dressed got out of bed and, out of, and got the car hitched into the cattle trailer and brought uh, the pony into the show and came back then, did his milking and his day's work and that evening he went back in to collect uh, less than sober owner and uh, a pony um, and Tom often recalled the story with a little bit of prompting because uh, the end result was that the pony didn't get featured in the major prizes he got, he got a consolation prize and the judges told James that uh, the pony's tail had been docked rather severely and only for that he would have made third prize. The, so the phrase Tom often with a little bit of prompting often quoted was the, the, what the judges said uh, you uh, docked the pony's tail rather crudely. Something he often recalled. <laughs>
Liam Oliver is a first cousin of Tom Oliver and a neighbouring farmer. He would have visited his mother in Carlingford on that night and his mother-in-law in the bar. And when he left there, he was he was watching a cow to calve. And uh, earlier that day, he had uh, come on a neighbour's child on the road that fell off a bicycle. And it was unconscious. The child was unconscious, a little girl, and he took her home. And uh, he called to that the neighbours to see was the, the child all right. She was serious in, in hospital at the particular time. He... Uh, he went to collect his calf and Jack at a neighbouring farm to uh, calve and Jack's an instrument you use probably when you're on your own to calve a cow if it's a difficult calf and he would have went to collect that and called to a neighbour to give him a hand but the, the lad was in bed so that was basically the last anybody seen or heard at home. Tom's farm there, the, the, the farm buildings and uh, around his milking sheds and the milking parlour was really open territory. Uh, he didn't have any gates on it and you could drive in one gate and one opening and out the other. And uh, they, they were playing cat and mouse with the guard. I think that was going on with the local fellows whom we assumed at that time were playing war games. We didn't think realise uh, that it was deadly serious and... Uh, that death would eventually result. Uh, I think people thought that they were uh, young fellows who, had, who were, were kind of wild rather than that they were evil. And so they were had a free run around and in around Tom's there, and particularly since he would be the person who would be out at all hours of the night down with his herd of cows, and the cows will calve down at any time of the day or night. So uh, any time, any time when I would be coming home late, maybe two, three o'clock in the morning, and you'd see light down at Tom's, and you'd see his car going down from his house down the road to the sheds. So he was very vulnerable that way. Uh, but there was no way that he was involved with them or any way, because he he um, had no time for the activities they were engaged in, and he, he often said that he looked upon them as silly fellows who were uh, playing these games. Pader MacDonald. If he knew the people, you know, if he knew who he was with, well, then he may think it was a joke or there was no importance to it, you know. But I would imagine as time went on, as the hours went on, and he left the area, if he wasn't unconscious or that, you know, but if he wasn't conscious, well, he didn't know, but if he was conscious, once he would have left the area and the miles went up, he'd know something drastically was wrong, you know. Like, this is the problem. People assume that whoever approached him knew him and he knew them, you know. Like, somebody had to know which field to leave the car. His tractor was here the day or two before that bale and hay in this field, you know. So we just drive up to the... to the gateway, you know. Now, that's the field. There was hay being baled at the time. And, um... As I said, no one knows whether he drove the car or whether his abductors took the car down. But it was really... It really confused the whole issue when they discovered the next morning that he wasn't at home that night. Because they went looking for him and after a wee while they discovered where the car was. So that's why the search was concentrated in this area. Because they assumed 
like as I assumed when I heard the news when I came home that like Tom was under pressure worked very very hard um, just the problems with a cow calf and the cow couldn't calve and he could just say this is it he'd go over and check the hay which would be easier to look at you know you could walk around a bale of hay easier it won't talk to you there's nothing the feelings you know for Tom had great feelings for for animals like he was next to a vet really you know he'd know when to call in a vet whereas one might leave it for an hour leave it for a day but Tom would know exactly when to call in a vet so the car was left here people searched this whole area thinking that he had just mentally had wasn't capable of taking any more in from the pressure point of view you know so the terrain in here with all the banks and all the rest and the sea and the river you know it's one of these environments that one could get easily lost in or walk and walk and never be found because you're along the showway, you know. So just the far field, far, the far side of that is the field that they say I own and I've seen the people in that and I ran down and that's when the whole thing unfolded about Tom Oliver with me, you know. Like my first feeling was, gosh, what can I do to help? You know, you felt that you wanted to help. It's just unloading. It's if you want to get sick. You have a load. You want to help, you know. And I, I took my tea very quickly and went right on long down. You searched and you searched and you searched. And if you, if anybody asked you how, how would you have the energy to do it, you could never imagine you could have, you know. I remember my husband came in and said to me that he'd had a phone call from somebody that Tom Oliver had was, was missing. And... Um, I, I didn't think at the time, maybe somebody else did, but I didn't think at the time that anything like this could have happened to him. I thought maybe that, um, like like everybody, like ourselves, I mean, I suppose finances wouldn't be just the best, and people sometimes, I suppose, worry gets to people, and they do foolish things. And I suppose that was the first thing I thought of. And... Um, I said to Tommy, God, I hope he, you know, didn't do anything foolish. And uh, Tommy said, oh, no, I don't think so. The search by Tom Oliver's neighbours and friends ended with a radio news bulletin on a chilly summer's night, the 19th of July. You'd imagine that this, it wasn't the radio that was talking, as if the skies were talking, you know. It was as, as if you could see Tom Oliver's name right across in this guy, Tom Oliver, you know, um, it said that the IRA had claimed responsibility for the abduction of Tom Oliver and that his body was dumped at a certain place across the border. You know, God bless us and take care of us. I know I looked up at this guy and I wonder, God of Almighty, this is... It must be true. Like, they mention his name and they know his name and he was a farmer from from Riverstown, you know, so this could it be right? It just, it just was so unbearable to think that this, minutes before this, or a half, hours before this, you were just searching for a, an individual, a human being, your neighbour, who was genuine and kind and all the qualities that I'm afraid not too many people have, you know. To hear his name mentioned across the airways, who Tom had no, ever his name mentioned in the airways before, you know. Um... I don't know, it was like explosive really in one's mind, you know. It was late and it was dark. Like it, it, when I when I didn't hear, I thought of our Lord and, 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 and the crucifixion in all honesty. It's a, it's quite, maybe people might understand that, but it, it was dark at night. It, it 
even though it was the summer's night, but it was cold and it was tafted. This was 10 o'clock, so you can imagine the summertime at 10 o'clock. The nights can get cold and dark, and this dreadful news, and you have mountains and scenery and everything else around here, and you look around everything to see, can you see anything at all that... I don't know what you're looking for. You don't know what you're looking for. You know, there's confusion in one's mind. Like, it's this awful cloud. You'd imagine the, the sky was going to come lower, like an earthquake. You know, when the Lord was crucified, that there was violent thunderstorms, there was disruption, there was everything. Well, that disruption was in one's mind, not physically in the in the air or around one. So, I just left. I couldn't talk to anyone in the area. I just walked the pad that we're after coming down now, back up, because I had come across the field, which is only yards away from my own house. So I, I wasn't even going to go home the short way. I was going to go home the long way, you know. So I went up. By the time I got up to the top road where close to Tom's house, the crowds were gathering. And they must have heard the same as well, you know, and people were running and panicking and with really disbelief. Um, I'll never forget that. I think I, I, I'd safely say that that was the worst thing that, that, that ever happened to me. The shock of it. I'll never forget the shock of it. Never. And I, and I don't think anybody else will, even the kids here in the house. They, they couldn't believe it. We had one son who used to go over and work in the yard with Tom, you know. And he, he bought a calf of Tom and, you know. But he... He was. It's it's hard to describe. It, it, it it's the terrible. It was the most terrible thing that ever happened around here. So like from that there, the the whole escapade of violence, the whole thing about Tom's death, and all has been building up in one's mind. You know how an individual, how a human being could take the likes of Tom Oliver, who we'll say to an individual wouldn't hurt a fly, who would help his neighbour and all, in, in relation to everything, whether it was physical or cattle or whatever it was, people could come to him at any time of the night or morning to call on him, and it was no problem to Tom. It was, to tell you the truth, it was easier for Tom to get up at two o'clock in the morning than it was at half eight, you know. And another nine thing as well, like how people, how Tom had helped everyone, and yet when Tom needed people most, on that particular night at half one or two, there was nobody there to help him. You know, all the helping he had given in his life to his family, to his father and mother, to his wife and children, and to his neighbours. Yet, when the hour that Tom needed one most, there was nobody there to help him. You know, he could cry out, he could have screamed, he could have did anything. At that time of the night, there was nobody there physically to, to, to be at his side, to say, Tom, hold his hand, you know, to comfort him, and all things like that, that he was isolated. He was really treated not like a human being. You wouldn't even imagine that an animal could be treated like that you know, to take him away from his farm from his cow that was calving, who was most precious to Tom, a cow that was calving to take him here or to take him straight to wherever he was held for those 17 hours like to hold him like that for 17 hours must have been very difficult and the way he was treated and all the rest like, he would have to really switch off mentally and really pray or devote his mind totally to his farm and his family. Otherwise, the, the, the torture of that would be unbearable. Like, to imagine that you could stay for 17 hours with questioning, questioning, thumping, and the violence that would have to be used in circumstances like that to get as much knowledge or whatever information they were looking out from him. And yet they got nothing, you know. 
Probably nobody will ever know what Tom Oliver said or didn't say to his captors in his final hours. Nobody in Cooley can say why he was singled out. The IRA statement that he confessed is treated with contempt. Well, obviously he must have been in the way of someone or some people thought that he was uh, an obstacle in some shape or form. I really don't know. I'm as mystified as anybody else why Tom should be targeted. Father Dennis Fall. Well, the police did turn up some stuff on Tom Oliver's ground. I think he turned it up first when he was digging a new drain down to the seashore. And it was left there for a couple of days, and they uh, knew, knew, knew it was found. They, were, they knew it was found. And the two or three days to come and take it away, but like all the rest of the Irish, they're too bloody lazy to get up in the morning and do the job. But then, they, having made utter fools of themselves in the, in the eyes of the locality, they had, to make, they had to get some scapegoat. The scapegoat, of course, was Oliver. They had made utter fools of themselves, couldn't look after their own business. And who the hell would join an outfit like that? And their guns were found, say, on Monday, and they didn't come till Thursday to collect them. He um, had no time for that sort of thing. He, he wasn't a man who would be urging them on or giving them cover or anything like that. Uh, he was obliging, and if somebody, just as I could take his trailer at any time, or uh, anything, any farm implement you wanted, if you went to Tom, uh, it was there for you to, ta- to take it. He was so obliging to everybody that uh, I often saw him going to look for his trailer or when you go for his trailer it mightn't be there somebody might have it and he wouldn't know where it was that was the sort of time that he'd have to go to look for his own uh, property uh, so that those who he wouldn't uh, if it was fellows, young fellows who might sometimes be maybe helping him on the farm who uh, might want the loan of a trailer or whatever it might be it was available to anybody but that wasn't to say that he was involved with them in any capacity, whatever, because I know that he was not. If, if Tom was taken away by friends or neighbours, well then he may not have been too worried. But as time went on and he realised that he was leaving his parish, his neighbours, the, the thoughts must have been desperate that would have gone through that man's mind. He, if a gun was put at him, well this may have, nobody knows initially what was, but if you have a gun at your head, this could be a Tom would have to struggle because he would have to resist those people that were taking him. He didn't go voluntary, no matter where he went, he didn't go voluntary once he left the area. Because I'm sure he realised then how serious the situation was, you know. And to be taken away and held in a building for 17 hours, rumour has it that there was bones broken and a lot of that people even said that he was dead before he was shot even, you know. But even from his captive's point of view, like to say that people have to hold a man, interrogate him, disfigure him, and then to put six bullets in his head, like that is beyond belief, that, that, that they can hold a man down, he's pinned down, he, he has no resistance in him at this stage. The man is, is like a, a baby at this stage. He is really like a baby at this stage. The, the power and the will to live must be gone at this stage. And yet those that have him, have him tied or chained or holding him down, and they point a gun at his head, at his head, not his knees. It wasn't a kneecapping. It wasn't being shot in the toes or hands or any. Pointing at his skull, at his human being's head. And six bullets, which left six holes in his head, 
that a person can actually point that gun, fire the first shot and come along, fire the second, third, fourth, fifth and sixth and have no feelings is beyond my knowledge. And close and walk away from it and pretend that nothing had happened. There would be blood, there'd be all the signs of murder, murder most brutal in that room or in that building. And that person can wash their hands of that murder and pretend nothing had happened. And pretend there was no reason. Pretend that whatever it is one can go through one's mind that you're doing it for a certain cause. This man was doing something wrong. There's no reason can allow you to justify that type of violence. And as the saying is then to, to bundle his body and dump it along the road was so horrific. You know, it's so ungrateful to the family to those that have to go and collect them and to waiting, waiting, waiting because of the security thing in the north you can't just go in and lift a body you know that happens to everyone that has been killed in the north it's not just Tom Oliver it's every person that has been killed in those type of circumstances their body has been dumped hours have to go by before they can be removed and how imagine a wife and children at home so they're crying out for their father they're crying out to hold him you know they want him they want to have him even though he's dead and he's shot they want to have him at home in his deathbed at home they don't want him lying for another hour at the cold roadside they'd rather him be no matter how bad he was they'd want to have him at home that's a human reaction that's what you want to do with the dead like the dead have to be respected as well as the living you know they, they would either have hooded him or they would be hooded, them, hooded themselves you know, real old Inquisition style, real old terror style, put hoods on themselves and or hoods on him. And whatever about the amount of physical brutality they would have used, they would have used a tremendous amount of psychological brutality, you know, clicking guns and putting guns to his head and roaring at him and uh, making accusations against him and trying to get him to make tapes for them, you see. And he made no tape for them. This is, uh, he was a brave man, he made no tape for them. And anyway, nobody would even accept a tape of that nature. Tape taken on the... I mean, we have, we spent years protesting about statements taken in Castle Ray from IRA men until they were disallowed by the Strasbourg and disallowed even by the Northern Iron Courts many times. They may have been trying to get Oliver to do something for them, you know, and he, would actually been a man of honour, wouldn't do it for them, you know. Probably... Uh, they, they probably had stuff in and around that neighbourhood and maybe wanted him to do something for them. But, I mean, they put out a, a document... Uh, on the day of the, uh, the big peace rally, 5th of August, listing a whole lot of things which he is supposed to have done. Information led to this. The, the local people couldn't identify any of these things. And then on the day Mrs Oliver died, his own mother, they released a tape. That was away about five months later, after they'd promised to release tapes. They supposed to have taken a confession tape from him when they had him up in South Armagh. That tape has never appeared. They released this tape... On the in December, the day Mrs. Oliver died, which was rather bad timing for them, and uh, no way was the voice on that tape Tom Oliver's voice. It was a fake, which showed, I mean, what uh, squalid types they were, even to fake a tape, to do a completely dishonest thing, to fake a tape, to blacken a, ma a deceased man's name, and to release it the day his mother died. That also rebounded on them very badly. So I mean. It's been a singularly unfortunate escapade for them. The assassination went wrong. None of their their allegations have been accepted. Their tape has been rejected. Uh, and they have been revealed as rather low-down, blackguardly types. Liz Keenan. A son of mine 
came, he had left a few friends over the road. He, he was 14 at the time. And he had left a few friends over the road and came walking back over the road. And he came running into the kitchen and he said, Mammy, there are things written on the road and I think they're about Tom. And I said, where are they written? And he said, just over the road. And he said, I think they're only after being written. So I got into the car and I went over and I just over beside us, over the road, and I saw in two places where these names had been written and then guilty underneath, you know. And I did, to be quite honest, I didn't understand it. I didn't, I didn't know what, what it really meant, but I knew it was something. I knew it had something to do with this, you know. So he took a couple of sweeping brushes. He took my sweeping brush from the kitchen and the one from the bar and the one from the shop. And the boys headed away, the young fellas headed away with the paint. And they painted all the slogans out, you know, they covered them all over. And as a matter of fact, they watched the whole night to make sure that nobody would um, paint anything else on the road. Um, I hate to judge anybody, but I know somebody did it, um, and I wish to God they would get their just punishment in this life as well as the next. I mean, it's so unfair, you know, they can condemn him to death, and yet they can walk about free. I mean, how they can justify that and what logic they have, it's beyond me. So I just wish that the culprits would be found and punished, even though it doesn't seem to be very likely. And I hope there's a God. I believe in God, but it's hard to know sometimes. But if there's a God and any justice in the next life, that they'll be punished there. That's, I suppose, all I can console myself with. When the IRA do these dreadful things, or the UFF or the UVF, these young men... Of course, they get great support from their own peer group, their own gang, their own the Republicans or the Royalists. They congratulate them and they build them up and they say, well done, as if it had scored a goal in a football match. But that doesn't last long. They've got to go home. They've got to be alone. Then they fear the police coming. They, they fear the evidence given against them. They fear they'll be 20 years in jail. But even if that all passes, and even, even seven or eight years later, they still have to cope with their own conscience. I'm thinking what the, the man they killed, and they know by that time how useless it all was, that it really didn't affect the political situation or any other situation, and they have the torment of the consciences at them, and they, they have to make their peace with God, and they find it very difficult to do so. And they, all, the, all the, the, the peer group support falls away, and they're left with this uh, terrible feeling of emptiness, this feeling of torment. It's like hell on earth, and they, they have to come back to the church. It's the only one who can pull them out of it look for the mercy and the grace of God and the advice of the priest so it uh, the beginning I think a lot of them after 20 years later they feel the horror of what they have done and the uselessness of it and uh, as the psalm says forgive me the sins of my youth is a very common phrase on their lips no daddy you know it hits you all the time just when you go into the house there it's so empty even though there's seven children and Bridie, their mother. It's just, oh, there's such an emptiness, you know. He was always coming and going and commenting, <laughs> giving them, encouraging them or telling them off or whatever. But it's just hard to believe and so empty. 
I don't know. It's awful, you know. I'd love to appeal to these people to do the killing or to ask them if they any hearts or any humanity in them at all or how would they like their own families to be murdered or I suppose they don't care or think, I suppose they have no feelings you know you have no idea until you go through it yourself you can only just imagine what it's like the, the just the loneliness and the sickening feeling of what's happened and that you have to live with that for the rest of your life. That's all I can say, really. It's just very... It just steals your enthusiasm away, your... I suppose for the young, their youth away. You know, it makes... I'd say it makes them grow up a lot quicker, the children. Which, I mean, in one way, I suppose it's, no, it's not a bad thing, but it's just so devastating and it's not fair you know they should be allowed to grow up gradually uh, a story my sister Margaret often tells was uh, of an incident at school where, and uh, she sat beside Tom they were in the same class the same age and it seems that my sister had committed some minor misdemeanor and the investigation was drawing dangerously close to her uh, and the number of suspects was, was narrowing fast when uh, Tom claimed responsibility for the act, though he had no act, hand or part in it at all, he, he deemed himself better fitted to take whatever medicine might be about to be administered. So that was the sort of mall through life, uh, ready to help others and put others ahead of himself. I remember taking a, a, a jug of water and a cup I thought that it might be advisable, you know, in the circumstances, because it was warm and it was a summer's day, you know, so that if anyone wanted water, just a family, you know, and I remember giving, I think, two or three of them took water and that, and there was a little bit left in the bottom of the cup. And you'd think it was left for Tom. Just one, like two mouthfuls that was left in the bottom of the, of, of the cup. None of them wanted it, none of the family wanted it. You'd think it was deliberately left for Tom, that this was the last thing they could give him was a little bit of water. You know, and what did I do with it? I just put, sprinkled it over the flowers to hopefully that they would spread a bit of joy. You know, I had nothing else to do, but it was. Do you think it was genuinely, deliberately left that this two or three mouthfuls of water was just left for Tom? I never said it to anyone before. I'm sure nobody noticed there was this little bit left, but it was there. You know. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.